Good morning. Let's read from our passage today. This is John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enon near Salem because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ. But I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he's seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. What brings you joy in, in life? What is it that brings you joy? Maybe it's, maybe it's your graduation or, or your wedding day or the birth of your kids or grandkids or, or an accomplishment um, at work or special moments with, with people that you love. I, um, I was thinking about what brings me joy, and, and there are several like, regular avenues that, that are just kind of joy producers in, in my life. Obviously, my, my family, my kiddos uh, bring me a lot of joy. Watching, watching Maddie, our youngest, bond with, with our kids, like, they, they've just been laughing more and more together lately, and it just it, it brings me so much joy to see like, what God's done there in, in our little family. Or little, we have four kids. It's a big family. Um, uh, uh, I have I have friends that that I don't get to see much anymore, but they they just mean the world to me. You know, I see them like maybe once every five years, or, or some I went a whole decade w- without seeing some of my best friends from college, and and I see them, and and I'm just. I'm just filled with joy. Like they make fun of me because I just like start to tear up. Like I'm so, it's so good to see these people that mean so much to me. Um, another thing that without fail produces joy in me is is former students from youth group. They've gone away, and, and I catch up with them on a break, and you know maybe we're having coffee or lunch together, and and we're chit chatting the whole time. All I want to hear about is like, man, are you still following Jesus? You know, and, 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 then, and then I get to hear about what God's doing in their life, and without fail, I tear up, because there's just so much joy in me that, that they're, still, they're still falling after Christ, right? That, that God's still, he's moving in them, and, and they love, they love Jesus. My kids, particularly my two oldest, as, as, they, uh, as they're getting older, um, I'm getting to see glimpses of, uh, of their heart responding to, to Jesus, Right? And, and it's not just this, 
this regurgitation of stuff that I've said or Lindsay said or they've heard in church, but it, it looks to me like, like they're, actually, they're actually responding. The Spirit's given them, them life, and it, it just it fills me with joy. So, so what produces joy in you? And I know we're in a church service, so you probably connected. It should have something to do with Jesus, right? Um, second half of John, chapter 3, we come back to John the Baptist. We, we, we just, in John uh, 3, in the first half, um, we hear from Nicodemus and, and the questions he has for Jesus. But, but with John the Baptist, we, we see what brings him joy, and it's, it is strange what brings him joy. It's totally right what brings him joy, but, but I say strange because it's, I don't think it's the norm. His, his target um, that, that, that brings him joy is not the way that we're wired. We're wired like Nicodemus. Nicodemus is, is confused. He, he, he talks to Jesus, and, and he's confused by the things that Jesus says. Jesus is talking in, in heavenly terms, and, and Nicodemus is, is stuck thinking in an earthly level. Jesus is talking about being born again, about the Spirit bringing life, that, that there's nothing that you can do to, to bring about this life in you, that it's God that does it. And, and we're like Nicodemus. Like, we're, we're confused. We're stuck thinking about what, what could this mean apart from, from Jesus revealing it to us. And John the Baptist, he, just, he isn't stuck in earthly ways. Right? John is he's set on, on what's from above. John doesn't celebrate what, what most of us would celebrate. His eyes are, are fixed on Christ. His eyes are fixed on Christ being exalted. He says, my joy is complete because Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, is finally getting the spotlight that he deserves. Hearts are finally turning to Christ. John just wanted to point people to Jesus. He knew that that was his job. So as the droves go to Jesus... He says, my joy is complete. I'm good. I could die now, and I'm, I'm good to go. John doesn't want much to be made of him. He, he wants the opposite. The more people leave him to go to Jesus, the more joy he has because he's doing the job that, that he was tasked with. So in 322, it says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and remained there with them and was baptizing John also was baptized in Enon near Salem because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. And we don't know how much time has passed from, from the conversation with Nicodemus to now, but, but at some point, Jesus and the disciples, they go to the countryside and, and they're baptized. And John 4.2 tells us that Jesus himself didn't baptize. There was the disciples that were doing the baptizing. And I don't know if this matters, but I think it's interesting. I read someone that, that thinks that, that that's probably so people wouldn't, wouldn't have this pride that they were baptized by Jesus himself, that they wouldn't have this false sense of security that it was his baptism that saved them. But nonetheless, Jesus with his disciples, they're baptizing. Over in Enon, John the Baptist and his guys are baptizing. Right, so we've got the same team, two locations, baptizing. Uh, verse, verse 23 lets us know that people are still coming to John and his disciples to get baptized. It's not like no one is coming in there. People still coming to John to get baptized. Uh, verse 24 tells us that, that John's in prison yet. And you're like, well, why? Or isn't in prison yet. Why? Why is that there? John assumes that, that most of his readers, maybe all of his readers, have already read the Gospel of Mark, which, which talks about John's imprisonment and later John's beheaded. Um, but John, the author of this Gospel, wants us to know that hasn't happened yet in the timeline of events. 
25. It says, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing, and all are going to him. This discussion arises in verse 25 with the Jew over purification, and we don't get the details of, of what exactly it was about. And, and for some of you, like, maybe that's not a big deal, like, okay, we don't know. But others, that just bugs you to death. Like, what is this about? Why is this here? But we don't get to find out. Right? Some think that, that maybe there's a comparison going on between John's, John and, and his disciples and their baptism and Jesus' baptism. And, and maybe there's a question like, is yours really as good as what Jesus is doing? Or maybe it's about something else, but there's this discussion. What we do know is it, it leads to verse 26, where the disciples say, Rabbi, talking to John the Baptist, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan. It's funny, they don't even name. They don't just say Jesus. They say, he who is with you across the Jordan. Remember the one you bore witness about. Look, he's baptizing, and everybody's going to him. The, the overflow of the heart here is what's coming out of the mouth of John's disciples. They are jealous. They're jealous that, that, that Jesus is getting a ton of people coming to him to be, to be baptized. And if we step back and think about what it must have been like to be one of John's disciples, I think we can all imagine it would be hard. Right? We, we know, as readers, we know, like, yeah, you should be excited. This is the Messiah. It, it's right that Jesus gets the spotlight. And, and yet, if we put ourselves in their shoes... We can imagine, right? You're part of this movement with John the Baptist. John's ministry was, was big. It, was, it, it took off, and you're one of John's closest, right? You're, you're one of his disciples. You're part of, of this, this thing that God is doing. Unmistakably, God is at work. And we've got to remember from, I know I've said this a lot lately, but Old Testament to New Testament, there's 400 years of silence, right? 400 years, they don't hear from God. And I, I talk to people, if you don't go three months without feeling like close to God, we freak out sometimes. And yet Israel, they had 400 years, they didn't hear from God. So now you're a part of what God's doing, and it's, it's crazy. I'm sure it was even intoxicating to be a part of, of this scene. You're in the thick of what God is doing. Hearts are turning to God and you're a part of preparing the way. And then one day, you're with John the Baptist, and, and he looks and he sees Jesus and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins in the world. And just think about what that must have been like. Right? You'd heard John talk about this over and over again. Messiah is coming. The Christ is coming. And then one day, your teacher says, There he is. That's the Messiah. That's the Lamb of God. And it must have been thrilling for them. And, and then again in, in chapter 1, verse 36, he says, Jesus, the Lamb of God. But then something happens. Some of John's disciples, right, your buddies, they go to follow Jesus. And, and, and maybe his disciples think, oh, good for them. That, that's, a, that's great. They get to go be a disciple of Jesus. I'm happy for them. Just means more time with me and John. But, but then, I, mean, I wonder, I wonder what Jesus is like. I wonder what it's like to be one of his disciples. And the days continue, and more and more people are talking about Jesus, and, and the buzz around town is just increasing and increasing. And then, and then we get verse twenty-six. That guy, 
John, who's with you, the guy who you bore witness about, now he's baptizing. Everybody's going to him. Baptizing was our thing. We're the ones that did that. And they are jealous. They made what God was doing about them. And maybe it was that way from the beginning. Maybe it crept in over time. While they should be cheering that Jesus' ministry is taking off, they're jealous. I heard a, an old retired pastor years ago he said that, that he, he always questions himself why someone's getting into ministry. He, he always wonders how much of it is really about them and, and feeling their, their needs, their desires, and, and how much of it truly is about Jesus. Because as Christians, we're really skilled at looking godly. We're really good at, at knowing the right thing to say, at knowing that Jesus is the one that needs to be exalted. But we wouldn't mind a little bit of the recognition a little of the notoriety, the praise. We want to be noticed. We, we want the success. Right? And, and if you've been in, in ministry on any level, you, you know what that's like. Like You have these moments where there's this gut check, and you didn't realize that you were kind of making it about you. Uh, my last church, my, my first job as a youth pastor, I'm supposed to, my very first day of official work, I'm supposed to teach middle school Sunday school. And I show up to the room 15 minutes early, and I get it ready, and my lesson's all ready. I'm prepared, and no one shows up. <laughs> no one came my first day. <laughs> and it hurt, <laughs> right? And, I, and it was a moment where I realized, like, oh, this is more about me than I, I didn't even know. I didn't even realize it, that I made this thing that's supposed to be about glorifying God. Somehow I made this about me. And we do it in ways that sometimes we know, but I think in a lot of ways we're not even aware. Verse 27, John sets him straight. John's response is awesome. He says, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. And this, John wasn't saying something new. Like you can see this in the Old Testament. They, people, some people understood everything is from God. Every single thing happens under the authority of heaven, under God's authority. God, God is in control of this. And he, he didn't say this, but, but he, maybe he implied to the disciples, you liked it when God was bringing lots of people to us to baptize. Right? God's in control. He's the one that's in control. Job, if you know the story of Job, it is a, a crazy one. Job loses almost everything. His kids die. Property stolen. Buildings are burnt down. And then one day, it says he's got boils all over him. And, he's, and this is disgusting, but he's scraping the boils off. And his wife looks at him and says, why don't you just curse God and die? Just get it over with. And Job responds to her, he, he says, are we only going to take the good things from God? Are we not going to take the terrible, the evil things? God's in control of all of it. Everything we have, everything you have is because of God. Your abilities, your skills, your drive, your creativity, everything. And maybe, like, no, I worked hard to get where I am. Well, who enabled you, right? Who enabled you with that work ethic? Who, who, who gave you the ability to even grow skills? Who created you with an aptitude for, for this or that? Who orchestrated circumstances in your life that would get you to where you are today? Who providentially provided people that would help shape you? Who graciously used difficulties and trials in your life to prepare you 
for today, for tomorrow, for, for next year. And there's mystery, obviously, in this. Like, how does God use our, our choices, our freedom, and yet he's sovereignly in control of everything? And I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know exactly how that works. But I do know, like, I look at my life, I can see God has been shaping me, right? And I'm not unique. Like, God's shaping his people for his purposes. So John the Baptist says, everything is given from God. John says, there's not a person going to Jesus right now that, that God didn't give to him. It's under the authority of heaven that those people are coming to Jesus. Verse 28, he says, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. John knew that he had been given a role. He had marching orders. He was one sent before Jesus. His mission, his job, what he cared about was preparing the way so that hearts would turn to Jesus. John chapter 5 says that, that John the Baptist was this bright, burning, shining lamp that, that just pointed to Christ. Do you see yourself as one who is sent? Right? Is, is that part of, of your identity? Right? If someone asks you, who, who are you? Describe yourself. Right? We often talk about what we do. Right? Maybe, maybe say, I'm a student. Or, or I'm, a, I'm a mom, I'm a dad, I, I'm an entrepreneur, or, or whatever. But anywhere in there, it, 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 do you think of yourself as a sent one? Right? One that is to point people to Jesus. John knew that was his role. Verse 29, this is brilliant. John says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. I just, this analogy is so good that John uses. And, and I'm sure that, it, that he was probably thinking of Old Testament pictures of, of, of God being the bridegroom, Israel bring, being the bride, and the, the two would, would one day come together. So John here, though, he's saying Jesus is the bridegroom. And the friend, or you can think of friend as the best man, John's the best man, and the best man's job is to put the spotlight on the bridegroom, right? He, he wants the bridegroom and the bride to come together for, for everything to go off without a hitch. And, and if there is an issue, he's going to do everything he can, right? The, the, the best man does everything he can to make sure that the day is right, that, that it's as good as possible. I've been a best man a, a couple times, and, and, and you do. You just, you want everything to go well, right? Like, you got breath mints if he needs it, or deodorant, or I don't even know, stuff you spray on your, cologne is the word. Uh, you got cologne. You're, you're ready to iron his tux if he needs it, whatever he needs. If he's nervous, you're going to tell him a story and calm him down, Whatever he needs. One of my favorite part, parts of, of, of being in a friend's wedding is before the ceremony, just getting to pray for him. I try to gather up all the guys, and we, we just pray. We pray for him and, and his soon-to-be wife, right, that they would know and love Jesus all their days, that they would follow after him. And th- this, is, this, is what, this is what the best man does. The best man has a good day if, if the day goes well for the groom as he comes together with his bride. I'm guessing you've probably been to a wedding where someone other than the bride or the groom is trying to take some of that spotlight. And the classic example is like the overzealous mother of the bride, right? Um, I, I, I love officiating weddings. I don't, 
people probably think that's weird, but I just, I love it. I love officiating weddings. And I've seen, you know, a couple things <laughs> a few years ago. Man, the Momzilla, she was, she was scary. She's a scary lady. And, uh, and we're in the middle of the rehearsal, and mother of the bride, mother of the groom did not get along at all. And you could just feel it. It was awkward. Uh, it was not good. And they got into this verbal spat, like in the middle of the rehearsal. And I, I truly wondered if fists were going to start flying. I'm not exaggerating, right? I know I enhance stories. No exaggeration. I was thinking, Lord, do not let this happen. I was also thinking, like, I'm not getting paid enough to, like, jump in there. Like, that lady, that lady scares me. Anyway, we've seen this at a wedding, or maybe it's, maybe it's not mom. Maybe it's, um, maybe, it's, maybe it's someone in the bridal party. And for whatever reason, they just they, they want to make it uh, about them, right? You hear it in toasts, and I don't just mean, like, kind of roasting them and having some good fun, but, but they make the toast, like, about them. And I, don't know if, I don't know if Haley and Michael are here, but uh, Mick, Mickey and Maddie got married last night. Some of us were at the wedding, and uh, Haley, uh, the sister of, uh, of Maddie, the bride, she gave a toast, and, uh, and, and she got choked up, and sometimes she didn't know what to say, uh, but I thought it was so beautiful, because the toast was very clearly about her sister. It, it was not about her. I, I just walked away thinking, oh, that, that's, I mean, obviously I was thinking this passage, but man, that's, that's how it's supposed to be. John the Baptist knows his role. It's not about him. Even though his ministry took off like, like a rocket, maybe like no other ministry ever has, but, but he knows he's the best man. His role, his job is to point everyone to Jesus, right? To, to, to get the bride and the groom together. So, so he's able to say, my joy is complete because Jesus is getting the attention he deserves. Hearts are turning to him. Verse 30, John says, he must increase, but I must decrease. And, and this, is, this is really, really strong language that's used here. The, the word must, it, it means this is the determined will of God. Okay, so when I use the word must, I don't think I've ever like, really used it that way. John, John's saying, this is the determined will of God that, that Christ increase. And, and that I decrease. And our tendency is, is like John's disciples. Like we don't, we don't want to decrease. Hopefully we do want Christ to increase, but we don't want to decrease. Like we're masters of, of making things about us. I, my kids, I don't say which ones, but like I'll compliment one kid, right? I'll say something like, you're so funny. And another kid goes, you don't think I'm funny? <laughs> what? No. But we just, we make things about us. And it's not just kids that do that. We, we do that. We, we make things about us. And, and Jesus' disciples, I'm sure externally, most of the time, maybe all the time, they said the right things. They knew that Christ needed to be exalted. But on some level, they wanted some of that notoriety. Right? The, Jesus is now like the, the, the hot rabbi in town to go to. Right? They wanted John to be the rabbi that everyone wanted. Obviously, Jesus was more than the hot rabbi in town. They, but they wanted, they wanted their rabbi. They wanted their teacher. They, they wanted some of 
the overflow praise, the notoriety. And competition in ministry is real. Right? It happens between churches. It happens between youth groups. It even happens within churches, between other ministries. And I know, I mean, I've seen it. Like as a youth pastor, I've seen it. I've even felt the jealousy when like your youth group, your numbers are down and, and, and your buddy's youth group or maybe a guy who's not your buddy but you know of him. Like his things are, are going crazy. And you, you, get, you get jealous and we make it more and more about us all while claiming that we exist to glorify God. You'll never see a ministry that has a mission statement that says we exist so that you see how godly we are and want to be around us consistently, right? And yet, there might be more of that happening than you realize, So John, what he says, I really think we should make this our prayer. Jesus, you must increase, and I need your help. I need your help so that I decrease, so I make this less and less about me and more and more about you. And Jesus' own disciples, they get caught in this this trap. Jesus catches them in this argument about who's the greatest of the disciples. There's another time where a couple of the disciples, they, they're, they're asking Jesus, can I sit at your right hand? I want to be, I want that power. I want to sit next to you when you're in power. And John the Baptist says, rightly, he must increase. <clears throat> this points to our, 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 our sin. Right? Our sin, we, we want our increase, uh, or we want our importance to increase and, and, and God's to decrease. He's on the throne, and, and yet that's where we want to be. We delusionally think that, that we would do a better job. John 3.31 says, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. So John, John here contrasts Jesus and, and us. He, he contrasts Jesus and everybody else. He, he's contrasting Jesus and, and, and John here. But he's saying... He who comes from above is above all. Not, not, not like you're just higher up in elevation, but, but in important significance, power, and in every way, Jesus is above all. And then there's those of us, the rest of us from earth. You know, and we have a ceiling, right? We, we've, got, we've got massive limits. Jesus is not limited. We are quite limited. <clears throat> Jesus is infinite, and we are very finite. Then he says the same thing in another way. He says, he's from heaven is above all, right? Jesus isn't from where we're from. He isn't like us. We're, we're kind of like him. We're made in the image of God, but he's not like us. And this might remind you of, of John 3, 3, where Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one's born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And I, I mentioned when we talked about this passage, the word again, it, it, it could be taken as from above, right? Born from above or born, born again, um, so, so Jesus, Jesus says this new birth, when he's talking to Nicodemus, it's, it's from above. That's where Jesus is from. Verse 31, we need that contrast. We need to understand that, that Jesus is all together. He's different than us. He's, he's beyond us. Right? How big is your understanding of God? How accurate is your, is your view of God? How do you accurately grow your view of God? And you're in church, uh, you know, it's, it's the Bible, right? Scripture, scripture is what informs us. God reveals himself through his word. Yes, we see creation and we have this general revelation about God. But, but God's word, it tells us who God is, right? So there are times in my life 
where maybe uh, things are hard and, and I, I'll kind of I'll be just in a bad spot and, and I'll realize my view of God is not right. I don't understand how big he is. So I have passages that I go to. That are, these are like my go-to reminders. This is who God is. It might feel like the world's falling apart around me right now. This is who God is. I want to read some of those to you. Colossians 1:15 through 20. I'm not really going to comment much on any of these. He is the image of the invisible God. Speaking of Christ, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He's above all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or, in, or whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Hebrews 1, 2, and 3. But in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I do want to point out a couple things that when I read both those passages I think about. In, in, in verse 3 there it said, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. In, in Colossians uh, 1.17 it says, he holds all things together. Right? And I take those to mean that Jesus is sustaining everything in the universe right now. Okay, There's no way we can comprehend how in the world he does that, but he's sustaining everything. Right? He's making gravity work. Right? He, he makes the planets orbit the way they're supposed to. All the things in the parts of the universe that we can't even see, they're happening the way they're supposed to because Jesus is doing that. That's, that's one of the things that Jesus does. Right? I get overwhelmed by trying to multitask a couple things. Okay? I was watching MasterChef Junior the other night, which is a show where 8 to 13-year-olds are like these amazing cooks. I don't understand how they do it. And this one kid, he's working four pans and the oven at the same time. And I'm thinking, man, I struggle to make my eggs while the toaster's going. <laughs> like, how in the world is this little 10-year-old doing this? And, 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 and it says that Jesus, he's holding all things together. He's making all this work, right? So the question, and I, asked, I was talking to Gary about this the other day. So how did Jesus do that when he was a baby? Like, like my mind, I can't even get anywhere with that. Like, my mind's going to pop. I don't understand how, how, to, how to baby Jesus keep everything going. Right when he came down in the flesh, we got to keep going here. Isaiah 40, I love this one. I love all of them. I love Job 38 too, but I don't have time for that one today. Uh, Isaiah 40 says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, right? Like God just measuring the heavens with the span of his hand. Enclose the dust and the earth in a measure and weigh the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or, or, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? 
And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? Taught him knowledge? Showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations, there's nothing. Nothing before him. They're accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? I love that very first line. It says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Right? Not his hands. Because you can fit a lot if you go like this. Right? But, but this says in his hand. Okay? So I've done this. Like I've, I've tried to form my hand and see how much water I can hold in it. Okay? And it's like just barely over a teaspoon. Okay? And, and yet this says that, that God, if he had hands, it's, his hand is so big that he could just hold all the water right there in it. Right? I don't know how this started, but at some point when I was a kid, every time I went to the beach, I'd look at the ocean and, and, and I'd just think, man, God, you're bigger than the ocean. How is that even possible? I don't even know why I'm tearing up about this. Or maybe you, like when you look at the stars, you think, man, God, you made all that. You're bigger than that. You want to know me. You died for me. How can that be? We always need to grow in this, right? Pardon me, I got some in my throat. We always... We always need to grow in our understanding of, uh, of God, how, how, how vast he is, how beyond us he is. And, and the Bible is such a gift for us, right? It, just, it helps us see God rightly. It helps us see ourselves rightly. It's, it's so often, reading the Bible is just like holding up a mirror and going, man, I'm just as dumb as those disciples. Like I'm just as prone to wander as, as Israel is. And we get to meet with God through his living and active words. So we, we talk about Bible says, the men's Bible says, the women's Bible says. We talk about the Bible read-throughs. I don't care which, like, how you participate. I just want you to meet with God in his word. I don't care if you do it at the the same speed as the rest of us doing a Bible read-through, but we have God's word. Like, we get to meet with him. He shows us who he is. Man, we need to see, because Jesus is not like us. He who's of earth is, is earthly, and I don't have time to read either of these passages, but Romans 5 and, and 1 Corinthians 15, they, they compare Adam and, and Jesus, right? Adam, the first Adam, and, and Adam is who we are like, right? He, he, was, he was actually made from the dust of the earth, and Adam chose to sin. Now we, we inherit sin, and we choose sin too, right? And, and, and through the sin of Adam came death. And yet, it, both those passages contrast Christ. Right? The, the, through Adam, death came, but through the one man, the, the next Adam, so to speak, Jesus brings life. Jesus brings forgiveness for sinners through his act of obedience on the cross. Jesus and the New Testament authors, they, they see people from earth, they see people for, from heaven. Right? People like Adam and, and, and people like or, or from Jesus. People that are dead in sin and, and people that have life through Christ. John wants us to see like these are the two types of people. This is it. It's, it's, it's life or death as we, as we see in verse 36. 
Verse 32, it says, He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Right? Jesus has seen and heard things that are literally out of this world. Right? Sometimes I read, like in, in Revelation, or the prophets, and like Daniel, and, and, and the authors can't even describe it well. They, they, they keep saying, well, it's kind of like this. Right? What I saw was like this. Like Jesus has seen, he's heard stuff that, 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 that we can't even comprehend, and yet, yet it says, yet no one receives his testimony. What does that mean, no one receives his testimony? Like we talked earlier in John 3, apart from the supernatural work of God, the Spirit imparting life into you, we don't receive Jesus. That's God's work in us that, that causes us to believe Verse 33, it says, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true, right? And you think of the seal as like just the seal of approval, right? That, that, that God <clears throat> is true. And the flip side of that is that whoever doesn't receive Jesus' testimony is saying that God's a liar. First John 5.10, whoever believes in the Son of God has testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. So part of knowing that you're God's is that you, you, you recognize what God says is true. You, you take the testimony of Jesus as truth. Verse 34 and 35, it says, For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. <clears throat> Jesus has been sent by God. He speaks the very words of of God, and we can be confident. Why? Because, because God's given him the Spirit without measure, no limit. This isn't, this isn't even just Jesus speaking on him. It, this is the Spirit speaking through him. And, and why? It says, because the Father loves the Son. He's given all things into the hand of the Son. He's held nothing back so we can trust the testimony of Jesus. We can trust that what he says is true. And then we come to verse 36, and this is, this is a sobering verse. It says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. Whoever believes the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. And, and when I read this, my brain actually changes a word almost every time, right? I read, whoever believes the Son has eternal life, and then I think it should say, whoever does not believe the Son shall not see life. But it doesn't say that. It says, whoever does not obey, right? Whoever does not obey the Son. Why is, he, why is that the word? Our, our unbelief is disobedience. Like, that's how important belief is. Belief in Christ. Like, it's not believing is, is, is disobedience to Christ, it says the wrath of God remains on you. And, and wrath of God, Christians, we, we generally do not like talking wrath of God. Now, I don't know about you, um, but I know there are things in my life that I, I try to ignore. Right? I try to pretend they're not there. I don't mean blind spots I'm just unaware of, but I mean things that, that I, I just, I know they're there, but I try to, I try to sweep them under the rug, or I just don't talk about them, or whatever. And we all have, we all have these things but it doesn't make them go away, right? It doesn't make them uh, less true. And I think that with the wrath of God, the temptation for the church, the temptation for Christians is to not talk about the wrath, like, like that somehow it's going to go away. But there's at least one problem with that. If we don't talk about 
the wrath of God. We, we don't know why we need Jesus. We don't understand what, what we're saved from or what people need to be saved from. I think about the, the stars. I love, I love looking at the stars. Um, during the day, it's an obvious statement, I can't see the stars. Right? The stars are brilliant. They're shining brilliantly. But during the day, I cannot see them. It's at night that I see the stars, right? And they're brilliant. And there's a difference, you know this, between like city stars and then going out to the boonies, right, where there's no lights. And then you go, oh, that's why they call it the Milky Way. Okay, that is incredible. If, if we don't understand the wrath of God that remains on people that don't believe in him, we don't see the brilliance of the grace. We don't even see why we need grace, but, but we certainly don't understand how amazing God's grace is. If you don't share the gospel, if you aren't looking for opportunities to share the gospel, if you're not begging God to give you boldness to, to tell this person about Jesus, if you're not praying for, for, uh, for the blinders to be removed from eyes so that people will receive Jesus, I wonder if part of it is you don't understand what it means. That the wrath of God is on those who don't believe. And, and I think all of us, we get why wrath is actually appropriate. Uh, like appropriate to terrible, evil things, to, to sin, right? If I asked you to just think of one injustice that just makes your blood boil, like we've all got one just like that. Like we know, oh man, this thing, right? Maybe it's human trafficking or whatever it is. We've got this thing that, that we want justice. And we have that because we're made in God's image, right? That's a reflection of God. God rightly has wrath towards sin, and, and the world needs, they need to hear not only about God's wrath, but, but about the grace, the forgiveness that, that has come through Jesus' death and resurrection. John wants us to see that those who believe have eternal life, and those that don't, those that don't obey by believing that the, the wrath of God is on them. The truth, uh, the truth statement for today thing I want you to walk away with is those who have eternal life, which comes by believing in God's Son, they rejoice. They rejoice as they see, as we see God's greatness increase, even as ours decreases. Let's pray. Jesus, would you, would you continue to change us, transform us, Lord? For those of us that know you, would we, would we long for you to be made known, for hearts to turn to you, hearts of those that we know and love and, and hearts of people that we don't even know, and hearts of people that, that maybe even treat us terribly. God, would, would we find our joy in, in, in Christ being exalted? Would we find our, our joy not, not in us getting glory, but in you getting glory. Lord, would you be so good as to show us the places where we need to decrease, where, where we're, maybe we're not aware at all. Would you show us what we're making this stuff about us, Lord, when it's, it is about you, Jesus. God, for hearts that, that don't even know if, if you're real, if you're true, God, would you draw them in? Lord, Spirit, would you, would you reveal to them that the testimony of Christ is true? 
Jesus, we need you. God, would we exalt you in everything that we do? Would, would, would these songs we're about to sing, communion as we take it, would it truly be worship to you, Lord? It's in your name that we pray. Amen.